Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidment, Executive Director of the Council. And today I'm fortunate to be speaking with Mark Tanner, the Founder and Managing Director of Shanghai-based China Skinny. Mark has provided China market growth strategies and research to around 200 brands, including Nike, Tourism Australia, Colgate, Ikea and Fonterra. Mark's views on China have been quoted by more than 200 international media outlets, including Bloomberg, Reuters, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal and Forbes, where he is a regular columnist. Mark also authors the world's most read newsletter about marketing to China and is a regular keynote speaker addressing audiences across the globe. We're fortunate that Mark is a Kiwi, and this means that post-COVID he's been locked down in New Zealand and we've been able to make use of his fantastic expertise on a regular basis. So welcome, Mark. Great to be here. Thank you, Rachel. Now, I'd like to kick things off by asking how New Zealand companies have been faring in China. So I think COVID's obviously impacted everyone, but as far as other exporters go, New Zealand's fared pretty well. Um, You look at dairy, for example, the government and some very um, well-regarded doctors have have been saying that milk's great for health and immunity, etc. So dairy's really gone up, hence Fonterra's results. Similarly, any product that's related to health, to clean ingredients, to organics or, or anything that consumers feel themselves or their kids will be healthier as a result, and that's just going through the roof. That's really interesting. And obviously, we have been hearing quite a bit about these regulations around dairy and the trends around health and wellness. Has there been anything that has been not so great uh, that has impacted on us over this time? Obviously, supply chains have been impacted with just the global movement of of freight and product. Probably the biggest change, and it's not something that sprung upon us on COVID. It has been happening for the last five or more years, is rising nationalism in China. And that's not just as a result of the geopolitical issues that that everyone hears about. It's something that's been happening for quite some time. Just from Chinese businesses are raising their standards, their quality control is a lot better, their products are better, their branding and and marketing is much slicker than it has been. And the the people that work there understand the China market incredibly well, so have adapted very well to the constantly changing needs of Chinese consumers. Uh, So a combination of that company's getting better, but also China in the past, they used to look at other countries with quite a lot of aspiration, particularly countries like America and and the UK. And they've seen the way they've, I guess, fumbled with COVID, whereas China's obviously contained COVID incredibly well. And, And that's been quite a strong reflection point for Chinese thinking, hey, we're not as bad as we were and, and these guys aren't as flawless as we once thought. So they're, they're much more proud of themselves and as a result of the products that come from their countries. That's really fascinating and I know when previously I've done research into other markets like North America for example, that's made me have to think differently because people don't just buy because it is from New Zealand. Does this mean that going forward into China we're going to have to be more competitive? I think that was already happening, but again, it's accelerated as a result of COVID. But New Zealand has, for a long time, just traded on this clean, green, pure positioning, whereas there's a lot of countries that are perceived as clean and green, even Australia, Canada and European countries, even some of the Latino countries are considered quite safe, and even Southeast Asian are considered quite safe 
So I think New Zealand has to get a lot more sophisticated. Obviously, we've got this great foundation around uh, the strength of our purity and we're this isolated set of islands miles from anywhere with clean air all around us and soil that, that is clean and, and pretty transparent ways of farming and, and things. And, and that's it's not just about the farmers, it's about that complete supply chain right through to plate in China that uh, is quite a concern for consumers. So I think New Zealand just has to, to build upon that foundation and, and get a little more sophisticated, everything from the right packaging format to really understanding the occasions that Chinese consumers are, are purchasing these products for and making it relevant. I talk a lot with research institutes as well, and traditionally we've been quite good at developing new products. Uh, and with Manuka Honey, we've been incredibly effective in terms of looking at its efficacy. But one thing we haven't done so much of is just looking at our meat, uh, looking at our horticultural products, and then really analysing them to see whether they are better. You know, I know through having spent a long time living in China that they certainly have a different taste profile. Um, but, you know, when we've looked at black currants, for example, I've got much higher levels of antioxidants than Polish black currants, for example. You know, do you think that that is something we should be doing more of? Definitely. Yeah, science is an interesting one because there's all sorts of scientific claims in, in marketing in China. There's recently, if you look at uh, camel milk powder, it's and we, we track a lot of dairy at China Skinny and, and we were couldn't understand where there were these just from nowhere in the last, well, pretty much since COVID, there've been these mainly local, a few Dubai based, but mainly Xinjiang and, and a Mongolian camel uh, milk powder companies that have just dominated, like their average spend per kilo is just off the charts. And there's now more value. If you look at the top sellers in, on Timor, there's more value on camel milk powder than there is in cow milk powder. And we're like, how on earth is, where has this come from and why is it happening? And similarly, there was uh, some coconut milk recently, that a large local brand that apparently you drink enough of this stuff and it makes you white-skinned and buxom. Um, good for the, it, 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 I don't even want to get into some of the advertising they were using. But uh, there's all sorts of claims. So Chinese are inherently not very trustful of these scientific claims. So you really want to make sure that you have very credible um, sources and, and both internationally credited and it's also good to have locally credited uh, claims. And there's also a lot of legislation and regulation around how you communicate that. So it's, it's not just as simple as saying our carrots have more vitamin D. It's a case of uh, actually really understanding the regulatory and, and the consumer um, those organisations that do hold some currency with consumers. Now, we've been talking about camel's milk, uh, but also thinking about New Zealand producers that have found China to be a growing market for sheep, goat, and now even deer milk. Uh, does this indicate that Chinese consumers are more adventurous than your typical Kiwi buyer? Yeah, it's interesting. You look at it wasn't long ago, Chinese consumers had very few things to choose from. And as a result, they didn't have a lot of loyalty towards brands because they just weren't brands. And then all of a sudden, the world has come to China and everyone's trying to flog their wares. Similarly, um, the Chinese, there's a lot of these, these Chinese brands that have come and, and it's an incredibly competitive market. I remember a few years ago, we looked at it. 
there was 500 new products and that includes like wealth management products and tourism products and things but there was 500 new products coming up every day on the market so these consumers are bombarded with these new brighter lights and bigger promotions and things and as a result they are incredibly promiscuous um, I guess because they don't have that ingrained brand loyalty. So in terms of dairy and then also circling back to this issue around packaging I know that you've um, with China Skinny you've written some really interesting pieces recently about this can you tell us more about packaging and what China Chinese companies in particular are doing so well where we traditionally have lagged? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question, and, and it doesn't just apply to dairy, but as Kiwis, I think dairy is a really good example to use. Obviously, things like imagery and, and whether you have Chinese text versus English text or a combination are both very important, and I could talk about that for the whole podcast. But I think what is often overlooked is the format itself. And so something, if you go into a Chinese supermarket or if you go into an e-commerce platform and you, you scan through screens or scan through shelves, you'll see rows after rows of one-litre Tetra packs, all these foreign brands that have these one-litre Tetra packs. And most, uh, most foreign brands, I guess they come in and they see all these other competitors selling one-litre Tetra packs, so they're like, we got to have one of those as well. So they'll, they'll launch a one-litre Tetra pack. And if you look online, every single one liter Tetra pack that's got any volume is coming from a foreign brand. But the unfortunate thing is most Chinese don't buy um, one liter Tetra packs. One, they don't drink milk in the way we do. The big volumes have a big glass out of the fridge. Um, they'll, they'll have smaller volumes usually. And so they, they feel when they open a one liter pack, they're not going to um, finish the whole thing in one sitting. And even if it's UHT, they still have this perception that it's no longer fresh when it's opened. It's oxidizing, a lot of it even. They don't put it in the fridge, they put it on the shelf, drink it at ambient temperature. They just feel it's wasteful getting a, getting a one litre. Whereas the smaller formats, the 250, the 200, um, they are much more convenient. So one, they're always fresh on opening, but two, because it's UHT, you can take it with you. And a lot of these millennials will put it in their handbag and take it with them and drink it for lunch or, or whatever to try and build up their immunity and their, their growth and strength and protein, etc. Um, so they're wanting convenient packages. And so if you look at the breakdown of who's dominating the, the 250, 200 mils, it's almost all going to local brands. So whilst there's this perception, and amazingly, although China's constantly changing, the melamine scandal is still quite raw with a lot of consumers. That was 12 years ago. And there still is this perception that foreign dairy is better, it's safer, it's cleaner. But if it's not in the right format, which in many cases it isn't, they'll just go with the, the Ely's or the Mungnels or the Bright's, the, the local brands the, who have the 200, 250 mils. And I think it was about 80%, maybe more, of, of all sales um, of this 200 format go through domestic brands. That matters, um, doesn't it, as well? And it also impacts on store placement. So I remember once talking with a retailer and he said to me, Rachel, grocery is death. It's death. Stay out of grocery. And, you know, we were so focused at putting UHT on the grocery shelf 
yet at that point Europeans who consume a lot of UHT and actually were further ahead in terms of adapting to new packaging types were putting it in these bottles and then putting it in the fridge. So it's sort of like juice that could be stored in the grocery section but gets an uptick and gets a price uplift when it's put in the fridge. Are some of these you know, Chinese brands, where are they placed in the store? I'm just going to go back one tick because we we do a lot of work with Colgate and we uh, we were looking actually in Hermar, which is the big Alibaba new retail, and we went in there and we were actually taking some of the big cheeses that come from New York and we were showing them around Shanghai and we went into this Hermar store and there was this European toothpaste that was in the fridge. It was something like $18 for a small tube and the guy looked at it and he's like, this doesn't even need to be in the fridge, but there's this perception that because it needs to be refrigerated, it needs to be fresh, and it really was quite important for these consumers to feel like they're getting something that will expire. So it's funny when you look at things like expiry dates, that is really important for consumers, but not for different reasons from us. We look at something and we'll buy it the longest we can have it, in, in many cases, in, in the fridge. It's greater. We don't want something that's going to expire tomorrow. Whereas Chinese consumers, if it looks like it's going to expire in many weeks' time, they'll be like, this isn't fresh, it's got some funny stuff in it, and they'll buy it for being fresh. So we we were doing some work with McCain uh, a while back, and they were looking to sell lots of frozen chips to Chinese consumers, which had two issues. One is a lot of Chinese consumers don't have ovens and don't have these types of kitchen infrastructure that you need for a lot of those food items that, that you get in New Zealand or in Canada or wherever. And um, they are buying more. That's something we saw with COVID, a real uptick in, in people cooking at home and investing in toasters and um, air fryers and, and stovetop ovens and things. But still, as a whole, um, a lot of people don't have ovens. But another thing is, and we were going into people's homes and opening up their freezers, and their freezers are tiny, they're like little ice boxes. And we'd uh, scrummage around and there'd be like a bag of frozen dumplings covered with freezer burn that looked like it's been there since Jim and Mal. And they'd just be like, we don't ever use frozen food anymore because with like this new retail with Hermar and a lot of these other retailers, I can just get on my phone and order something and it's with me in 30 minutes. So as a result, there's absolutely no point waiting for things to thaw out. It's not fresh. And there's this real perception that fresh is best with Chinese consumers. That's fascinating with regard to fresh is best. And of course, there's also the rise of digital channels. uh, And that impacts on what we were discussing earlier regarding store placement, because the impact of store placement has possibly reduced as well in a digital environment. Yeah, digital is, is a very interesting one. Like Previously, food and beverage was one of the slow adopters relative to fashion and and smartphones and a lot of other gadgets and things were selling like hotcakes online but food penetration was under 10 percent versus over 20 percent for retail as a whole but then this thing called covid came along and, and a lot of consumers who just they had no other option other than buying online um, with the lockdown so the, a lot of them went online and and a lot of them have continued, like groceries have, have really retained a lot of the, the spike that happened during that lockdown. It hasn't dropped back down. I guess people who were formerly not that confident on e-commerce and just didn't like the idea actually think it's quite easy to do and quite quite good now. And as a result, 
a lot of the infrastructure that, that has been holding back, particularly cold chain, et cetera, has, has been invested in is continuing to be so. But getting back to your frozen food, that is a really interesting one right now. Don't get me wrong, people still are buying frozen food. But something that's happened with uh, originally um, with the, the salmon that came in from Norway and Beijing in June and subsequently many, many frozen seafood, has, particularly from Latin America, they're even claiming New Zealand had some meat with, with COVID on it. But there's this real perception that anything frozen from overseas could have this dirty disease or dirty virus on it. So there's a real issue around perception for foreign frozen right now and, and will be until COVID's well and truly gone. And you're seeing a lot of stores with which already have the stock are just dropping their price on it half, even more sometimes. My team was out doing some research in a second tier city. They went into a supermarket and one of the supermarkets had all of this blue wrappering around the, the imported frozen products and sprays and gloves. And they were really making a deal of you can still buy our frozen stuff. We've got all the precautions in place to make sure you're safe. So frozen exports are probably going to not be so great for the next, well, until this vaccine's widespread. Looking at, at this type of issue, including packaging format too, you know, one thing that I've always found is often we'll have a perception in New Zealand in terms of what is going to be popular and good. So for a, a while, this is a few years back now, everybody was saying, why have we got manuka honey and PET? It's incredibly expensive it should be in a fancy glass jar but for a project there we went out and talked to retailers and they said we don't want it in a fancy glass jar it's too expensive it can break it's too heavy to ship manuka honey can vary in color according to the seasonality of it and we want it to look more like a pharmaceutical product and keep the price point high so you should just be looking to follow the market movers and then just price it sort of slightly different do you see that still happening? And do you think there's more that New Zealand exporters should be doing in terms of actually understanding what both the retailers and the channel partners and the consumers are wanting? Yeah, I think for particularly for Manuka honey, there are so many brands and they all look the same. Other than Convita, they're all just fighting it out for 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 the scraps. So I think it's really important to try and differentiate yourself and, and a lot of that can come from packaging. But it does need to be resonant, it does need to be relevant, as you say, for the retailers and the retail channels. Things like e-commerce is obviously, there's issues, you've, you've got third-party delivery people that, are, that probably won't take as much care as others on handling glass and things. So it's really important to make sure you've got those bases covered. You know, I think a theme that has been coming through is how good Chinese companies are at adapting to the market. What is it, do you think? What could we learn from them? And what could we be doing better? Yeah, so China Skinny was commissioned from, from one of the big FMCG companies uh, last year to do a study into how Chinese brands are innovating. And we looked at, and we've been following it, for seeing the rise of Chinese brands, particularly in the consumer packaged goods category, for the last few years. I think it was 2017. 98% of all growth in FMCG came from domestic brands. It's since dropped back a bit, but that growth is, is really dominated by local brands. And so we did a real deep dive into why this is happening. And we looked at things like, obviously, as I talked about before, the format, the packaging right, the marketing is, is incredibly important, just making sure those messages are resonant and they're in the right places. 
But structurally, it's something that doesn't get talked about enough is a lot of these brands are set up to be much more adaptive to this constantly changing Chinese market. And it's really come home with uh, COVID where, where things changed even quicker than normal in China. And these brands could really adapt to these new new tastes. And you think look at things like immunity that's in just about every communications and products you wouldn't expect in China. Every brand is, is claiming immunity now. And, and that happened within a few weeks for a lot of these brands. So they're really quick at adapting. But structurally, and, and a really good example is Meng Yo. Them and Ely really dominate the, the dairy industry. We hear a lot about Fonterra and how much milk they're selling into China and, and A2, etc. But the big players in China are just, the volumes are pushing through, particularly the retail channel, is, it dwarfs anything else. And a lot of it is obviously um, having the product right and the messaging right, but their sales structure is really quite impressive that, that they create this real hunger they have uh, what's called an amoeba um, sales model, and, and that gives these small sales teams a lot of autonomy. So they can, they've got their little neighborhood to hang out with, and and they uh, they are responsible for that, and, and they compete against all these other little teams, and and they are incentivized accordingly. So as a result, these sales guys are really really hungry. So they're going out there, and they like the average salesperson in dairy can make about say 5,000 RMB a month. Whereas these Meng Yo guys, if they work hard, they can make 12,000 RMB. They're sleeping in their cars to make sure that they uh, they get the first bird. And so you've got this really hungry force. You attract people that really want to work for a company. They can really succeed and make a lot of money. In the old days, everyone wanted to work for, for a Fortune 500, an American or a European firm. But increasingly, they're seeing these Chinese companies as one that's helping the country. They're cutting their teeth in a lot of cases in an American company and learning how to, how to really operate effectively. But then they join these Chinese companies that, that they, one, they're supporting the country, but two, in many cases, the decisions are made a lot quicker. Um, there's a lot less gates, um, a lot less steps to the CEO or the main stakeholders. In many foreign companies, and New Zealand included, you'll have these companies that you'll get the Chinese team and they'll be pushing decisions and ultimately it has to be signed off by someone in Auckland or Sydney or London or Melbourne or New York or wherever. And these leaders, some of them are incredibly au fait with China. Some of them have lived there, but they're not living, breathing it every day. They're, they're making decisions based on a whole lot of spreadsheets and data and things. Whereas in China, you've got these CEOs, and in a lot of cases, CEOs make an awful lot of decisions rather than this collaborative uh, setup. They just, the one guy kind of makes all the calls, or one girl. And as a result, they can make decisions a lot quicker. But something else that I found really interesting, we spoke to an awful lot of senior execs in Chinese companies and in foreign uh, FMCG companies. And they were talking about just the, the time to market. And obviously China's changing rapidly and you, there's all this new product development that's quite necessary. And we talked to this cosmetics company, a big well-known cosmetics company in China. And they they had made this product from ideation through to selling on the shelf in three days. It was a, a face mask. Spoke to a, a 
a Western shampoo company, and they had taken from the first idea through to actually selling this shampoo, it had taken three years. And I, I think anyone that, that's done anything in China would know the kind of trends around hair care can be a little bit different even in six months, but in three years, it's just not that relevant anymore. So that they're also really prepared to try new things and, and be much more just throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. And so that you look at the average number of SKUs for, for a Chinese company, and it's significantly more than, than the average Western company. Even a lot of the more mature Western companies have many more SKUs in China than they do in their other markets. And if, even if you look in America right now, that some of those big companies are actually decreasing their SKUs. But in China, consumers don't want to feel like they're getting the same product for 1.4 billion other consumers. They want to make sure that they're getting something that's specific for them. So it's all about just not just having the right marketing and the right channels and the right product. It's also about the structure of the company in China. And I think what's really interesting is obviously that's very relevant for companies that are selling in, in China. But Increasingly, these, these Chinese companies are spreading their wings. A lot of these Chinese companies are just much more dynamic and much more of a lean startup approach. And, and I think as New Zealand companies exporting, we need to be aware of, of the way they operate and in some cases try and uh, replicate some of their, their structural advantages. That's really fascinating. And I think that sort of has some parallels with my podcast with Anna Mowbray from Zuru. And they were based in Guangzhou and then Shenzhen because that's where the supply chain was. And they could adapt very quickly in the process from the initial idea and the ideation phase is very short. Uh, and they could really outpace the big guys like Mattel due to that, having that sort of ecosystem and also that approach and attitude in place. Yeah, totally. I, I think you don't have to be Chinese to do it. And I think uh, the Zorro guys are, are awesome at it and they've really... I guess observed and realised this is this is an advantage of being in China or, or operating like a Chinese company. Are they but, quick to cut as well? So if something's not working, are they quick to ditch it? They are. It's that lean startup, fail fast, learn fast approach. Um, so again, as I said before, they throw a whole lot of things against the wall, and and it may just be a tweak. And in a lot of cases, a lot of these new products, they might be very similar. Uh, they might just have a different segment or one additional ingredient or, or whatever or just different packaging and different claims. Um, but in many cases, they, they'll try it. If it doesn't work, it, it doesn't last long. And the great thing with e-commerce, so much now is selling in China on e-commerce. It's very easy to get some pretty instant feedback from the market. So, Mark, just finishing up, what do you think is our advantage if somebody's starting up in New Zealand and they're looking to approach the China market? What's the potential and you know where should they put their focus? Well, I think there's so many good examples of, of New Zealand companies that have done incredibly well. It's just because obviously being a Kiwi, I'm always looking out for it, but all sorts of categories, we do really, really well. We're hitting above our weight. Um, Toothpaste is another example. We, as I said before, we do a lot of work in the oral care category. And there's all these great New Zealand toothpaste brands that, that are some of the leaders in that premium sector. So I don't think we're ever going to compete on volume, and, and I think that's a cliche in New Zealand. But at that premium end of the high value, the high margin end of the market, we really do have a lot of scope to do incredibly well and really play on both our 
our natural advantages around the environment and just our, our safety record and things. I think brands shouldn't just take a softly, softly approach to China. If, if you do want to come into China, I think you've got to really take it seriously, not just try a whole lot of different markets and, and see which one succeeds. In China, you've, you've got to go boots and all and really give it a proper go rather than just this half-hearted approach, which some businesses do. Thanks to Mark Tanner for taking the time to speak with us. If you're not already subscribed to China Skinny, you are missing out on the world's most read newsletter on marketing to China, which can be in your inbox every Wednesday. You can subscribe at chinaskinny.com. For more podcasts, please check out our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz, or follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.